I'm Christopher Pelling. I'm professor of Greek here, which makes it a bit odd that I'm talking to you about things that are Roman, but we, uh, we're, we're, we're a, a multitasking sort of lot in Oxford. So, how to be Augustus, how to escape one's own past. Um, I sometimes find myself wondering how Emperor Augustus would have reacted when that brand new copy of Virgil's Aeneid arrived, plopped onto his breakfast table, shall we say, sometime in, in 19 BC. Uh, there he was, Augustus, been emperor for perhaps 10 years, depends exactly when we start uh, to define the start of his reign. Uh, there was Virgil. Well, actually, there wasn't Virgil. There was Virgil who just died um, with instructions that his poem should be destroyed, but that was overruled. Uh, the poem would have been delivered. And Augustus would have known that something was coming some time before, 10 years, 11 years before, uh, Virgil had promised that he would write something, a later poem. In the middle of a later poem will be Caesar, I, Augustus. He shall have his temple there. I'll gird myself to sing of blazing battles to celebrate Caesar's name so that it lasts for as many years as Caesar now is distant from the first origins way back when. Well, probably by now, Augustus would have known that it wasn't going to be quite that sort of poem, the sort of poem that uh, that would do come in, uh, that would uh, literally have been uh, suggested by that. It isn't going to be a poem that's actually about him, about his military conquests, at least not directly. Uh, there had been recitations, he'd already heard part of it. Uh, but he must have expected, and he would have been right to expect, that he would be in there somewhere. And emperors must be a bit like academics in some ways. Academics are awful whenever any new book comes out on anything that we, uh, we know about. First thing we always do is to apply, well, what in my case would be the P test, see how often Pelling is quoted. Uh, in his case, it would be the A test to see how often Augustus came out. And it's to probably three times uh, there are actually specific references to Augustus in the course of a poem. And if he looked at those first, as any academic would, uh, he'll be quite pleased with what he found. Uh, in the Underworld, in Book 6 of the Aeneid, where Aeneas has gone down and has given his prophecy from his, his uh, dead father Anchises of how the future of a Roman state is going to play out. Uh, not at the end, not building to a climax, but in the middle, a sort of central point of what all Rome is about. Here is a man, here he is, the one you've often heard promised before, Augustus Caesar, son of a god, son of Julius Caesar is what's meant there, adopted son, um, who'll once again bring the golden age to Latium, the fields that once lay within Saturn's realm. He'll carry Roman rule beyond the Indians and the Sahara, beyond the path of the sun. Notice how militaristic it all is. It's going to be a military conquest. It's going to be world rule. It's going to be empire. Uh, the kingdoms of the Caspian and the Black Sea are even now quaking at the prophecies of his coming. And the seven mouths of the Nile are in frenzy and alarm. Seven mouths of the Nile, particularly appropriate uh, because of the great conquest over Cleopatra, which had sealed his victories in the Civil War over Antony and Cleopatra. And Cleo, Cleopatra is going to come up a little bit later in all this as well. And then when we get to Book 8, we've got the shield of Achilles, which is given him portrayal again of Augustus' center, center stage of, the, um, of uh, the glory of that victory over Actium. So, you know, it starts off pretty well in terms of the initial A-test. 
Uh, delve a little deeper and it may look a little bit different uh, a little bit later, even in that passage in Book 6, Anchises Prophecy. He's talking about something else. He's going back to the, the rather earlier wave of the civil wars when Julius Caesar was fighting Pompey in the early 40s, uh, the first of a wave of 20 years that ended with Augustus's victory. See those two men, says Anchises, these two men, Caesar and Pompey, as they gleam in their similar armor. It's immediately stressed. It's a civil war. It's Roman against Roman, exactly the sort of thing that shouldn't happen. Men who are at one for the present will be, as long as they lie in the dark. But how vast will be the war between them, if ever they see the light of day? How great the battle lines and the slaughter. The father-in-law, that's Caesar, uh, the daughter was married to Pompey, or had been married to Pompey before she had death coming down from the high alpine walls and citadel of Gaul, the son-in-law Pompey against him, arrayed in the arms of the east. And remember this father-in-law against son-in-law things, as that's going to be important. Don't do it, says Anchises. He turns, as it were, to these shades of Pompey and Caesar even before they're born. Don't do it, my children, my descendants. Don't accustom yourself to the thought of such great wars. Don't turn the strength of your country against your own vital parts. You... You, Caesar, you're the one who traced the descent from Olympus. You should be the first to desist. So first of all, we move to a, a great emphasis on civil war. That's going to be almost a culmination of this picture. Exactly what oughtn't to be happened. It's a tragedy. It's worse than a civil war. It's a family war. It's father-in-law against son-in-law. Uh, it's going to be also the one who carries the main responsibility, the one who should stop, is Julius Caesar. It's Augustus's adoptive father. It's not really a glorious sign. That's where the blame rests. It rests on Augustus's own family. So civil war, this is what it leads to. And that business of a father-in-law against a son-in-law, well, that brings out immediately one thing that I suppose is clearly true about the Aeneid. Uh, the way that so often in the Aeneid one feels that one's playing out in anticipation some of the, the great themes of Roman history. Uh, now some, there's some seats scattered around. There are some in the front here, some on the side. You'll probably have to split up and, uh, and find them. So great, uh, great themes of Roman history. Uh, one is, I'll tell you about some of the others in a moment, but one is the great civil wars of the, the last generation, the generation before Augustus, the generation before Virgil and, his, uh, and the audience of the Aeneid. That generation which started off with those great wars of Caesar and Pompey, again, father-in-law against son-in-law. Well, the Aeneid too, in its later books, is full of a battle of father-in-law against son-in-law. Uh, the father-in-law is Latinus, the king of Latium, whose daughter Lavinia uh, is there waiting to be the prize for Aeneas or Turnus, uh, the potential son-in-law at least, the potential father-in-law. They're at each other's throats. It's as this story of the birth of Rome is already a civil war. It's already playing in anticipation the shed, shedding of kindred blood, not simply blood of people who ought to be your own because they're your kinsmen, they're your fellow citizens, but your family as well. They ought to be a marriage, it ought to be one, and it's all going wrong. 
So this emphasis on civil war, well, in one way, that could be something that wouldn't be that unwelcome to Augustus. Uh, He, after all, could claim, did claim, to be the person who had put an end to those civil wars, whose final victory had put the civil wars finally to rest. This is a coin that he put out in 28 BC, nine years before this, uh, the breakfast that we're talking about, two uh, two years after his victory over uh, Antony, the end of the civil wars. If you look at the one on the the right there, you can probably just make it out, Pax, it's peace. Peace is what he's brought. Peace is what he's celebrating there. But with that emphasis, so much emphasis in the, in the Aeneid on this war as a, a civil war, it's going to be pretty hard for any audience to forget that these are wars where Augustus himself and before him, his adopted father Caesar, had played such a very big role. It's not really very triumphalist, it's not very celebratory, it's an emphasis on the cost, on the tragedy, as much as, as on the triumph. And I suppose I reflect something, which is, is a, a deeper truth about the Aeneid, really, that um, I've said about the way it plays out in anticipation, so many of the big themes of Rome's history. So many of them are played out there, and he says something slightly unexpected, possibly even off-key, possibly off-message, about each of them. Is it really off-message for Augustus? I don't know. We'll talk about that. But, well, let's specify three things, really. Uh, First is what I've already talked about, the civil wars. The civil wars of uh, Augustus's own generation and the past generation, the wars that had defiled Italy, the beautiful countryside, so much emphasis on the countryside of of Italy, of Latium, but that countryside is so laid bare, so spoiled by all the bloodshed upon it. And already I've suggested that the emphasis there is is on the cost as much as anything else. But there are two other things as well, two other great things in in Rome's past. Uh, First is, immensely in the Romans' uh, historical imagination, the great wars against Carthage, uh, the wars against Hannibal, the wars culminating in the destruction of Carthage hundred years and more before their time, but still very, very, very large in how the Romans thought about their history. So that's the second one, Hannibal and the Punic Wars. The third, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, the, the last phase of the wars, the great adversaries of Octavian, who then became Augustus. Uh, and as I say, in all of these things, he doesn't say quite what we might expect talked enough about the civil wars already. What about the Carthaginian wars? Well, of course, the great threat to Aeneas um, was in Carthage, in Dido, the great seductive uh, temptation of the queen. And how on earth has that come up here? I'm not sure. Oh, technology, where would we be without it? Does that work? Try the other one. Yeah. So cool. I can even, t- even cope with the machine. Um, uh, back in book one, uh, Venus, Aeneas's mother, very odd mother, turns up the, uh, in front of her son wearing you know, really cool, sexy leathers, and it's so sexy, and the uh, son doesn't know quite how to deal with all this. Um, we've been through that. By the end of the first book, um, Venus is expressing to, to Jupiter her fears for Rome. What's she afraid of? Well, she's afraid of what may, may lurk in Carthage, as that's where Aeneas is about to land. Or has already landed. There's such a 
warm welcome. She's been so gracious, so queenly, regal, marvelously dignified, and marvelously hospitable. Uh, and uh, Dido has done all that, but Venus isn't happy. She feared the house where one couldn't know what to believe, a domum ambiguam, a lovely phrase, and the Tyrians of forked tongue uh, by Linguis, um, both in talking about the famed multilingualism of uh, Tyrians of Phoenicians in Carthage, but also you couldn't trust them. Uh, and this picks up on a classic Roman fear of Punic faith, as they called it. Never trust a Carthaginian. The only good Carthaginians are dead Carthaginian. All that sort of stuff. Um, well, there is a certain amount of perfidy and deception and unreliability and deceit, certainly in Carthage. But where does it come from? It doesn't come from the Carthaginians. Uh, the real people who are... Uh, a house where one couldn't know what to believe, a real people of Fort Tongue, are, of course, the, the proto-Romans, Aeneas himself. Uh, they're the people who break faith. The tables are turned. It's not what you would expect, a nice, comforting, triumphalist story of good old Romans and nasty old Carthaginians. The tables are turned. And what about Cleopatra? Uh, such a great figure, such a dominant figure. I'll say more about her later. Well, we hear a bit about her as well uh, in, in the Aeneid. Uh, she's depicted on the shield which Aeneas is given in Book 8. Uh, and there she is, uh, depicted by Vulcan, who, who crafted it, Palentem Morte Futura, pale at the prospect of her death. Well, that may remind us of something, if we know the poem well, and that's Dido. Again, Dido comes back in this role as well. Another beautiful queen, another beautiful queen in Africa, uh, another great seductive figure. And as she dies at the end of Book 4, her trembling cheeks flayed with, flecked with red, she's pale at the prospect of death. Paladem morte futura. The earlier one was palentem morte futura. We probably don't need that hint. I think any Roman would think of uh, Dido as already, again, playing out in anticipation the role of Cleopatra, a great threat that uh, is uh, on the verge of, uh, of me menacing to dethrone, de 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 detrail de de the, uh, the, the, the movement of Rome towards glory. Uh, but again, it isn't simply a triumphal story. Dido... However, one reads her, and different generations have read, read her differently, but is so much of a sympathetic figure. It's very hard not to feel from her point of view, to see it through her eyes, and not much ancient poetry, not much ancient literature of any sort, sees it through her eyes. So here again, we've got things that are not so triumphalist, upbeat, glorious, Roman, Augustan, as we might expect. Uh, how is Augustus going to, be, uh, going to be reacting to that? Is he going to jump up in horror? What a, you know, this is not what I expected. What have I been paying him for all these years? Uh, or is he going to have a slightly more measured response? Uh, it's, uh, one of my colleagues began his first lecture in Oxford to a, an audience that was full of their, uh, uh, probably at their first lecture. His first words were, Virgil was a traitor, which isn't a bad start to your first lecture, it must be said. Is that going to be Augustus's response as well? Traitor to me, lucky for you, you're dead. Uh, or what? Well, we'll see. But what I want to do in the second half of what I say is to relate this uh, more, I suppose, uh, to well, how Augustus himself, in these ten years before 
he would have received the poem, uh, would have been defining his role, working out how he was going to play it, how to be Augustus, in fact, how to stop being the Octavian, which is or Octavius Caesar. Caesar had been his previous name, to take on this brand new name, this brand new identity. And I want to put this, too, into three headings. First of all, not to be Julius Caesar. Get away from what Julius Caesar had done. Secondly, not to be Mark Antony, not to be Antony. And thirdly, not to be his own earlier self, uh, to break away from that as well, how to escape one's own past. So first, Julius Caesar, rather a, um, a flattering portrait um, of uh, him, I think this one dates from when he was in power. Notice his very full head of hair. Uh, Caesar, in fact, was said to be um, uh, very, very sensitive about his baldness. I don't understand why. Um, uh, uh, liked how wearing his laurel wreath to, to hide it, but this was obviously a, a sculptor who, who knew what was good for him. Okay, Caesar. Caesar, at the end of his time, had become effectively monarch at Rome, one-man rule at Rome, and had got various things badly wrong. Um, he had been very humiliating to the, to the Senate, to the um, other elite aristocrats of Rome, hadn't treated with them with respect. There's one famous time when um, the Senate came to greet him, 600 men coming up, uh, and he failed to rise from his seat. And they were very offended, and it was clearly a great embarrassment. There are all sorts of excuses that were brought out uh, uh, later. But he hadn't been feeling well, but it'd been a dizzy fit. But in one case, he was suffering from diarrhea, and uh, as the, the standard translation of, uh, of a Greek historian has it, uh, there was a danger of a sudden flux. Uh, all sorts of reasons why, but it was clearly an embarrassment. It needed to explain away, be explained away. And particularly, there was all sorts of fears, may not be realistic fears, but they were certainly very intense, uh, that he was turning himself into a king. Certainly a god, better evidence for that, of turning for, for godliness than kingliness, but king was what really got to people. Uh, and this clearly was, was a matter that caused great offence. Um, this coin, a famous coin, which many of you will have seen before, one put out by the, the liberators, Brutus and Cassius, the people who'd killed him uh, in the years between the killing of Caesar 44 and their own defeat by Octavian and Antony, to working together at the time uh, at Philippi. Uh, the Ides of March, you can see at the bottom, uh, the Ides of March when they had struck it down. Actually, today, as it happened, I hadn't actually registered that ping until now. 15th of March, it's an anniversary. Um, the daggers uh, that they had used to strike, and that sort of strange cap in the middle, is a slave's cap. Uh, it's the cap, uh, well, it's actually the cap of freedom. It's a cap that you give to a slave when you're giving them the fair freedom. Uh, it's the freedom for which they had struck. Um, now, how does uh, Augustus to deal with that? Well, he takes freedom as being his watchword uh, rather than uh, the, the opposition. He'd been one of the people who'd destroyed Brutus and Cassius, the people who'd put out those coins. Uh, but this same coin I've put before, pieces on the right, more difficult to see on the left, but for, uh, going around the edge there is Libertatis Populi Romani Windex, the champion of the liberty of a Roman people. It's doublespeak. He represents the power that he has uh, instituted as being restoring liberty 
fighting for liberty, getting away from that nasty threat. It's the others, it's Antony and so. They're the people who have a threat. He's the liberty man. Uh, the large, some of you may have seen this in Rome, still it's, it's a, a, a tremendous display of Augustus's own monumental inscription, the Res Gestae Divi Augusti, you can see at the top. Uh, all his achievements with which, and it starts off, which he'd uh, suppressed the whole world to Roman Empire. Again, it's conquest imperialism is what he's talking about. Uh, but in that beginning of this inscription, which he gradually revised all the way through his life, the very beginning of it uh, is when I was 19 year old, um, I acquired an army at my own initiative and expense, this is against Brutus and Cassius, uh, used it to free the state at a time when it was under the control of a faction and to claim its liberty. Actually, it's not, um, it goes on for several years. He was 19 when he first started fighting Antony. Uh, and then it goes on to Brutus and Cassius a year or so later but claimed its liberty in libertatem windicavi, the same phrase as libertatis windex on that coin. And it's a technical term, it's what you do when you claim your own slave for freedom, when you give for freedom. It's freedom rhetoric, uh, and that's what Augustus takes. So one thing he's not going to do, is play with a machine, uh, is uh, uh, be a Julius Caesar over again. What about Antony? Mark Antony, the great adversary, uh, the great Roman adversary in the civil wars. Antony, with his affair with Cleopatra. Well, even without that, even if one forgets that affair, Think about Antony, well he was a bit of a goer, he was a party boy. Uh, the, the notion of immorality was so centering around that and he turned it into part of his own glamour. I'm very, I always like this one. Um, this is the base of an inscription that was found in Alexandria. Uh, it dates from about 34 BC I suppose, where there would have been an inscription of Antony on top of it. And it's in honour of Antonius the Great the man who is inimitable in the matters of Aphrodite, matters of Venus. Uh, this is put up by, obviously, a follower, obviously a fan. Inimitable is a word that's often found within the context of Antony. He and Cleopatra had their own dining club of the inimitable livers, it was called. Livers, people who live in that particular case. Uh, and uh, at the end, it was replaced by a uh, dining club of those who are going to be partners in death. But in the matters of Aphrodite, well, there may be a serious cultic uh, link here with Venus, Aphrodite. It's hard to get away from the notion of, uh, uh, of Antony. Antony is so good in bed. He's the greatest lover of them all. Uh, and indeed, Antonius, in the Greek, it's Tom Megan, the great, or the big. There's, there's sex in the air all the time with Antony, and it's an affectionate thing, clearly. It's part of what his followers would have, would have admired, would have found fun about him. I'm not sure that Octavian Van Augustus was a particular fun guy. Antony was. And then Cleopatra herself, so glamorous, possibly not a great beauty, this is, as you can see, this is a coin, but soon regarded as such, stylized as beauty, partly because a lot of her, her depictions would have partly stylized her as Aphrodite or as Isis, or the goddess as well. Uh, but again, so much of the glamour of the East, so un-Roman, again, so erotic, so sexically charged, all surrounds Cleopatra. 
Incidentally, we, we have, in the la from the last years or so, uh, got, uh, we don't know exactly what she looked like, we do know what, she, what her handwriting was like, as we, we do have, sorry, this is a complete aside, an autograph of her, as it were. Um, this is an inscription from the papyrus, in fact, not an inscription, a papyrus from about the same period as um, I've been talking about, about 34. Just at the bottom, in a different hand, there's a single Greek word, Sorry, it's not a very good picture. Genoito, uh, may it happen, let it be. And it looks as if that is, in fact, inscribed in her own hand. Those who knows, know things uh, uh, think that this is what the monarch herself would have scrawled at the bottom. So, coup. Didn't fancy having Cleopatra's own hand. We've only had that for the last few years. But again, the idea of sexiness, or the erotic side, is something to, to put behind him. Uh, it had been used a lot in the propaganda, Horace's Epode, poem of that, thinking of how awful it is as the final campaign looms, uh, that a Roman soldier should bear stakes and arms for a woman, serves under withered eunuchs, all these signifiers of that decadent East, and amid the standards, sun gains sight of a shameful mosquito net. It seemed to be a rather weak climax, but mosquito nets are thought to be terribly unmanly. A proper Roman should actually take his bites like a, like a man. The decadence, the unmanliness, the sexiness, all that has got to go. Instead, you get Augustus developing the idea of the exact opposite, the Roman family, the royal family indeed. Uh, this is uh, on the uh, Ara Parcus in Rome, uh, a spectacular display of his own family, also well-behaved, uh, wife, family, all dutifully, coyly, demurely sitting at Rome doing their weaving and so on, everything that Cleopatra was not. But appeal to the Bible belt, just get all that erotic stuff out of the way, Encourage marriage, report, reward people who have lots of children, do exactly all the opposite of what Antony and Cleopatra has done. Define yourself as something that the moral majority at Rome will like. And another part of that, including the erotic side, is a third category of escaping from your own past. Because Octavian, had, uh, Augustus as Octavian, had had a bit of a past as well. Um, this is, in fact, back from a period of where propaganda is going everywhere, exchanging insults. Uh, we're talking about the time when uh, we're, we're shaping up for the final showdown between Antony and Cleopatra. And this is an open letter from Antony to Augustus. Again, all about the same time, about 34. 33, in fact, in this case, BC. And uh, uh, at that time, Octavian is already laying into Antony for his love life. And Antony affects to be just a bit bewildered. What's changed your view towards me, he says? Is it because I, what isn't Latin a wonderful language? Uh, Regina ineo. Uh, I am literally entering the queen. Um, is she my wife? Of course, he hasn't been doing it for nine years anyway. What about you? Is Livia the only woman that you uh, enter? Uh, does it matter where and in whom you have your erections? That's great stuff, isn't it? Um, uh, a few years ago, I was um, wheeled out to 
It was a documentary on Anthony and Cleopatra, in fact, on BBC. Um, it was due to be used as um, uh, a warm-up later on in the year for um, uh, a showing of the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra. And they showed it once, and uh, I used this uh, phrase. Uh, first time it was after nine o'clock, uh, and they had kept it in. They had to cut it a second time. It was on New Year's Day, because it was before the threshold. And I, you know, being on telly is one thing, but to be censored, I mean... <laughs> God, that was good. I was so proud. Um, okay, getting away from his own past as well as from the sexiness of all that. And how does he do that? That's the uh, part of it is the, it's the youthful, uh, the youthful terrorists almost, because there's so much bloodshed. Some of it again very perfidious, associated with his time in the Civil War. That had to go, and the definition is going to come of him much more as a priestly figure. This is a priestly shawl over his head. Uh, and a figure above all of order, of bringing order to the world. Again, it's that sort of peace thing, I suppose. It's a fa this is a famous um, uh, statue of the Augustus of a Prima Porta, about 20 BC, some of you all know it. Uh, and uh, I don't have this sort of traffic uh, directing stance that uh, Roman emperors love to have. Uh, on the centre part of it there, on the middle of the breastplate, um, there's a scene, certainly of peace, it's of the, 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 the Parthians returning the eagle that they had uh, taken from Rome in a great disaster a few years earlier. Uh, a peaceful end of that sort of conflict. But it's not just peace. Um, there's captured people to the left and right. Again, it's not very clear here, but around the ribs. Uh, and on the top, you can just about see sun and moon looking down. The whole order of the universe is there, and reflecting the conquest, the control of the world, but also the peaceful order that Augustus comes. It's no longer the youthful terrorist. It's no longer uh, the youthful uh, person whom uh, could... In, uh, in engage in all that erotic joshing with Antony. It's the figure of control, the one who brings peace to the world um, and uh, is very much a figure of Augustus, Augustus start. Okay, well, it's time, I'm out of time, just finishing very quickly. So, what would um, Augustus have thought? Um, he would have thought, certainly, that um, uh, a lot of what the main preoccupations were of the Aeneid were preoccupations that he'd had as well, uh, preoccupations that had been the sort of things that he had to do to define the, the flavour, the texture of his rule in those last ten years. Um, he might have thought that Virgil was actually getting near to the bone by being too accurate, in fact, of all the sensitivities that were there. Still, it wouldn't have been quite on message, I think. I'm not sure it was quite what he would have hoped for. Uh, the emphasis on the cost, what about that? Well, uh, again, he might have liked something a little bit more triumphalist, but I have ended by putting up the famous passage from Tacitus Agricola uh, to bring home something I think is more broadly true about the Romans, the way in which they could be, despite attacks of immense hypocrisy from time to time, you know, this bringing peace to the world and uh, civilization and so on. Uh, they could also be very clear-sighted about how the, um, the people who are Rome's victims, the people who are in the way, might look at it. A famous passage from Tacitus Agricola, uh, where the British chieftain is talking about what it really means, these Romans, these rapists of the world, that they run out of land for their universal devastation, turning their eyes to the sea, enemies rich, they want wealth. If poor, then glory, neither east nor west will be enough to satisfy them. The only people alive to be as greedy for poverty as for wealth. 
They plunder, slaughter, grab, give all this a false name of empire. When they made a desolation, they call it peace. Great stuff. And uh, it's not the only passage. There are a whole sequence of passages uh, in different authors where Romans could have these attacks of being really, really pretty clear-sighted about what Roman Empire was really like, what it meant for cost to them, what it meant to the cost of people that was in the way. And I think that's one of the ways in which we might find it interesting. And the last thing I'd want to suggest to you is, well, two last things I want to suggest to you. First, that the Romans are paragons of virtue. I mean, they are often awful people. Uh, I'm a professor of Greek, after all. You know, we tend to look down on those vulgar, nasty little Romans. So, uh, you know, they're pretty good at biffing, sure. Uh, and as you've seen, there's an awful lot of emphasis on biffing in how Augustus sees his own role. Uh, and they could be, as I say, appallingly hypocritical and appallingly ruthless. But what they did have, uh, could in some moods have, is a sort of real clear-sightedness about what it, uh, what it all meant. We, the second last thing I want to suggest to you is the only reason for studying these subjects is what they tell us about ourselves. We sub study the Romans, we study the Greeks, because they're really interesting. Uh, it's really uh, uh, engaging, involving stuff. You can see so many different aspects of a civilization. Uh, but it is fascinating there to see how some of the things, the ways in which Things are looked at in that very difficult time are, have similarities with our own use of propaganda, with our own views of imperialism, our own views of, of monarchy, our own views of, of what a, a nation might, might be looking for. But it's also different in some ways, that clear-sightedness of what it costs and the feeling that we can be honest about the cost to others and to ourselves and still do it and still feel that imperialism is one thing that makes us glorious rather than simply guilty. That's not quite the way we think. So whenever we're looking at other people, other cultures, past cultures, it's always a double thing. We always find out a bit about ourselves at the same time as finding out all sorts of fascinating things about these people we look at. Thank you very much. <laughs>